listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for this show, we are going to be discussing Ozzy Osbourne's first solo album, Blizzard of Oz. Released on September 20th, 1980 in the UK and March 27th, 1981 in the US. The album would help define Ozzy's solo career and be one of his biggest selling albums, eventually going five times platinum in the US. The simple story leading up to the album is as follows. Ozzy gets sacked from Black Sabbath. Everyone in the industry believes that his career is over, but Ozzy pushes on and searches for musicians. A chance meeting with former Rainbow bassist Bob Daisley in a pub is the first step in the right direction. Discovering a young and unknown guitar phenom from LA named Randy Rhodes would be the next major and special piece of the puzzle. The three would begin rehearsing and working on songs while auditioning drummers, with Lee Kerslake, formerly of Uriah Heep, being the final missing piece. And then history is made. All right, Darren, this this is a special one for me. I I think this is a special one for you, too. Uh, We decided for everybody out there with the the podcast that we we are going to be talking about the solo albums of Ozzy. Uh, and we're going to be doing it in the sort of order that they that they sort of happen. So Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell came out first, and then Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz came out. So Darren, like I said, it's a special one for me. I think it's a special one for you too. What are your memories of discovering and hearing Blizzard of Oz for the first time? Well, I have a lot of memories about surrounding this this album, and I know that. I had seen ads for it in the back of magazines as far back as 1980. And I was reading articles in Hit Parader, maybe Circus. Yeah, Circus Magazine. I, I, had, I still have the issue. And um, it was talking about how Ozzy was getting ready to release his solo album. Um, there was obviously a lot of acrimony between him and Sabbath, um, Hit Parader, the one article that had a lot of cool, iconic pictures of Ozzy from the Sabbath era and current pictures of Sabbath with Dio. That came out sometime around 19, the, the end of 1980, I guess. And they had the headline on the front was Ozzy versus Sabbath or Sabbath versus Ozzy. So right away, I was intrigued because I was familiar with, with Black Sabbath with Ozzy because I, you know, I'd, I'd had, I bought Never Say Die. And like, like I talked about in our Never Say Die podcast, I didn't really become a big fan of Black Sabbath at that point. But um, I was intrigued when I started to see these articles and started seeing some of the pictures. And I, admittedly, I, I thought the pictures of Sabbath looked really cool. It, heaven and hell stage set with the crosses on a slant on either side of the drum riser and Ronnie James Dio with his wizard sleeves and Tony Iommi clad in black. It, it 
painted a pretty cool picture. But then um, seeing some of the pictures of Ozzy and with basically in and around the Sabbath era, which is really, this is really the first time that I'm seeing a lot of, of Ozzy and Sabbath pictures and things like that. I was kind of drawn to Ozzy. I, I thought Ozzy looked cool. There was, there was like this, this vibe that he had in the pictures. And so I, when I was reading these articles and I was sort of determining what side I was on, I, I pretty much made up my mind that I was on, on Ozzy's side. And I liked Ozzy's voice a lot. Um, so a little while later, um, I heard in the radio an advertisement for the Blizzard of Boz concert that was coming to Upper Darby right outside of Philadelphia, the Tower Theater, and heard um, basic snippets of, of music that, that was on Blizzard of Oz, but I hadn't seen the album yet. And I guess the reason was because it was several months after the UK release date that it was released in the US. So I hadn't seen it around, but I was seeing advertisements. I was reading articles and, and the hype was starting to build for me. So when I did see it, I jumped on it, I bought it. And I, I, I was familiar enough with the cover because I, I'd seen like little postage stamp pictures of the cover in the backs of magazines and catalogs and things that you can order and, and just in advertisements for the album coming soon. I remember there was one particular advertisement that had that, it had a Who compilation, it had a free compilation, various other things going on, but it was just a little postage stamp picture and I really couldn't make out what was on the cover until I went to the store after it was released in the US, saw it on the wall, thought it looked really cool, a lot of atmosphere, kind of an occultish vibe, nothing over the top, very subtle, but I thought it looked really cool with the, with the cat in the corner and the skull with the horns and this Ozzy with his wild eyes and, and the cape and everything. There's all these different things going on on this album cover. You know, that's sort of the dry ice, the smoke in the background. It was just a collection of images all on one album cover that just looked really cool. So I, I snapped it up and uh, I took it home, put it on. And as soon as I heard, I don't know with that, that intro or that, what would you call it? It was not really a black backwards symbol effect. It's some kind of whooshing sound. And then, and then the guitar kicked in. And I don't think I'd ever heard guitar quite like that. I, I had the Van Halen, I had a couple of Van Halen records. So, you know, I was, familiar with with that style of guitar but i hadn't heard it quite like that and then ozzy's voice came in and as clear as a bell it was everything i liked about his voice prior to hearing this album maybe even better um the songs were great there was they were heavy they're heavy enough for me circa 1981 um and uh there was just enough levity to balance things out so it wasn't overwhelmingly dark. I appreciated that at the time. I, I did like the lyrics. Uh, I wasn't really sure about Mr. Mr. Crowley, Mr. Crowley, as it's pronounced correctly as Crowley, but pronounced it Crowley on the, in the song. I'm not really familiar with that. Um, 
but you know the basic lyrical concepts of crazy train and and i don't know was sort of a humble song and and i from reading articles i got you know the background on ozzy you know being like this figure in black sabbath where people associated him and even as early as this as like the prince of darkness type of a character and then uh, the lyrical concept of, of i don't know basically being you know hey i'm just an ordinary average guy here i don't you know don't come to me and ask me for any answers i'm just doing my thing uh and then suicide solution song song to song which we'll get into um there was something something interesting about it it, it was a whole package uh, from album cover to the sound of the music to the lyrical content of the music to Ozzy's voice. I was just swept away. I, I listened to it all the time. I got home from school. It was the first thing I did. It was run in my room, close the door, put on Blizzard of Oz and just listen to it. I, I knew every little thing that happens on that record the little little background noises your little gremlin type things that you could never quite figure out what's going on but it builds into that atmosphere you know it just it puts you and when i was a kid i'd sit there i'd lay on my bed or something and i'd i'd stare at the album cover while i was listening to it or i'd take out the inner sleeve that had just the ozzy osbourne blizzard of oz logo on one side and on the other side how the lyrics i just pine over reading the lyrics while i listened to the to the album and man i I just put myself really in that, in that album. It, it was a big, big milestone for me. And, um, and after that, I became a real diehard Ozzy Osbourne fan. Um, started buying any magazines that I could find that I would see in the newsstand that had pictures of Ozzy or any, even just like a half page ad for, for Blizzard of Oz and Circus Magazine had a really cool Blizzard of Oz half page ad, horizontal half page ad that I ended up buying the magazine just so I can have that and cut it out and, and put it on my wall. So I, yeah, I was fascinated with Ozzy. I, I, I love the album and uh, yeah, made a huge impression How about you. Did yeah, you this is, it? this is a very, <laughs> yeah, this is a very important album for me also. If, if I, or to sort of distill down the uh, the most important albums in my musical journey. Uh, the first one for me would be Back in Black. The second one would be Paranoid. And then the third one would be Blizzard of Oz. Uh, when I discovered this, I had already was familiar with, with Ozzy from, from Black Sabbath. Uh, I didn't have access to the magazines like you did. Uh, so it was sort of a surprise. I think, I, I don't know how, how I knew that he, he was, you know, had a, had a solo career or whatever. And my, my first time seeing the album was uh, there was, I would have been in, this would have been 81. It was released in the U S. So I would have been, I guess in fifth or sixth grade. And uh, at lunch, one of the kids in my class came to the lunch table and he said, okay, listen, my brother is in eighth grade. I went to a Catholic school. So I went up to eighth grade. My brother's in eighth grade. He's got a friend that just got the brand new Ozzy Osbourne album. And he's going to let everybody look at it. <laughs> okay. So I could, if I could take you, if I don't even know if the building is still there, but if I took you back to this, to my old school, I could show you exactly where we were standing. So at the end of the school day, 
a whole bunch of eighth graders sort of made a perimeter around this kid that had the album and he had it in his book bag. So he's in the middle. He's got a perimeter of eighth graders around him, keeping all the young kids back. And they're all like sort of like like secret service agents, like, OK, you know, step back, step back. And he the kid with the record goes, all right, here's I'm going to I'm going to pull this out. Uh, you're not allowed to touch it. You're only allowed to look at it. And, and at this point, I had heard a couple of the songs on the radio. I think I had heard Crazy Train. I think I had heard I Don't Know. So I had already heard it. I knew what Ozzy looked like from Black Sabbath. But in my mind, it was all like I had no idea what this was, this was going to be. And this kid pulled it out of his book bag, held it over his head, and slowly turned around in a circle while all the kids just stood there with their mouths open like, oh, my God, this it reminds so, me of the scene from 16 Candles when the kid comes and he has the girl's underwear. He's all right, exactly. I mean, this was like, oh my gosh, this was so cool. And then, you know, I got it pretty, probably pretty quickly after that. And uh, I just remember, man, just, just, just being, just being floored by it. And, and it, as I was prepping for this and listening to the album today, it really took me back. And I had a big smile on my face when you were mentioning how you knew every little nook and cranny of this record, every little squeak or, you know, like the little talking in between, you know, after before no bone movies and mm -hmm. at the end of no bone, like all those little things. And as I was listening to this today, I could almost feel, I had it on cassette. I could almost feel smell that cassette in my hands yeah. i mean it really really uh took me back and like you i was just hooked right from the beginning i you know i had been exposed to van halen like like you were and everything but this was different this was in more of a metal context van halen for me was more of like a party hard rock thing this sort of uh this darker overtone, this gothic, you know, more literature style gothic tone to a, to a lot of these songs just really floored me. And if, as I was listening to the album today, if all the things that I enjoy, many of the things that I enjoy now can be traced back to this album. Okay, yeah. you've got tolling bells on it. You've got classical style things on it. You've got classical guitar on it. You've got the album cover with dry ice. You got these are all things. When I see an album cover with dry ice, I'm just like, whoa, this is so cool. And it all goes back to you know this Blizzard of Oz album, and it had such an aura to it. It had such a a vibe to it. Uh, the musicianship on it was was really great and just the songs hit that perfect spot for me of I, I'm a sucker for melodies and hooky well-written songs it's got that all over it yet it's got still the heavy riffing it's got the out of this world guitar playing of Randy Rhodes who I immediately fell in love with it's got the classical overtones of like Revelation Mother Earth and Mr. Crowley uh, it just had everything for me and it became you know, this was my th I wasn't there for when Ozzy was in Black Sabbath like when we talked about in our Heaven and Hell episode I kind of felt like all right I'm here for the beginning of the Ronnie James Dio era and I felt like with Ozzy it was like okay I'm here for this 
I'm all in on this. Randy Rhodes was, he's my guitar player. This is like, this guy checked all the boxes that I wanted. He had the technique of Eddie Van Halen, but he had this melodic classical minor key sound to his playing. Uh, just everything about it was just perfect. I'd listen, I was just like you. I mean, this, this was uh, an album that I just listened to over and, and over again. And it, and it holds a very, very uh, special place uh, in, in my heart. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you there. In fact, when you, you mentioned that there was a smell that the cassette had, I remember the smell of the record when I, and I opened it and I pulled the inner sleeve out. It had that, that printing smell, you know, the ink smell. And I haven't smelled any other record that had that same, that had that same scent other than Blizzard of Oz. So I remember, I mean, I've gone through several copies of this over the years. I mean, my, my first copy is long gone. I don't even know what happened to it. I mean, I just wore the, I just wore it out. And then I had it on every format. I had it on eight track at one point. I definitely had it on cassette. I had a couple different albums um, over time, one at a time. But then, you know, I would, I would basically, I'd let them out or something, or I would, I'd see one and I'd, I'd buy another one. I just love the album. I mean, I was crazy about this, this record. Um, but I mean, there wasn't really a lot of visual stimulation or, about Ozzy at this time. It wasn't until Diary of a Madman that Ozzy mania really started to take hold. So, and at this point, you know, it was it was building up in the U.S. You know, he was he was touring at least when when I had the album. You know, over in, overseas or in the U.K., you know, he was already doing shows, playing the Reading Festival. Did he actually play the Reading Festival or did he pull, did they pull out of that? I don't know if they played that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think they played any big festivals with. No, he did do, he was on the bill for the Reading Festival. Okay. But I'm not sure. I think there was something about maybe he pulled out. He didn't like the billing or something like that. But anyway, so he was overseas and they were playing shows. Um for you know a good what was it like eight months before the album was released in the u.s and then the the u.s press started catching on and promoting it and things like that so there wasn't really at this time until diary came out a lot of a lot of stuff to look at there was just basically this album cover the front and the back and lyrics and things like that and a few pictures you'd see in in magazines at the time so you know it left a lot to the imagination which was pretty cool because, you know, I put a lot of, I invested a lot of imagination, the visuals, the, the lyrics, the, the, you know, the imagery was conjured up and, you know, especially with the, the colorful phrasing and Mr. Crowley and um, Revelation, Mother Earth, you know, all the, the apocalyptic type of uh, subject matter that was associated with that. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was, um, that I thought was, a bad influence in any way. If anything, it was, it was kind of thought provoking, obviously, you know, the Mr. Crowley thing had an occult um, subject matter involved with that, but it, it, it wasn't anything like that was overtly like, you know, over the top, like uh, satanic or anything. Yeah. I don't even think there's any cursing now that I think about it on the record. I don't think no, there's any was... cursing on it. It's, it's pretty. And even like you said, the album cover, 
it isn't totally over the top. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I mean, it's sort of suggestive of, you know, you got the, the, the skull and everything and, and he's holding the cross and everything on it. So it does have this little bit of a, you know, vibe to it, but you're right. Ozzy hadn't gotten, it's, it's kind of easy to forget that because Ozzy is such a public figure now, you, you'd be hard pressed to walk down any street probably in the world and, and anybody of any age and find somebody who doesn't, hasn't at least heard the name Ozzy Osbourne. I mean, he has, you know, become this larger than life uh, person, but really in 1980, you know, Ozzy was really down and out. Uh, the reason why there, there's this gap between being released in the UK and being released in the US is nobody believed in it. You know, they thought it was going to flop. Nobody thought Ozzy was going to amount to anything. Uh, he was uh, notorious. His, his alcohol abuse was, you know, everybody in the industry knew about that. And he was sort of this, this down and out guy. So it, 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 it picked up steam really quick. I think when it, when it got released in the U S and it started getting played on the radio, but you're right. That period between like it being released in the U S and then diary of a madman is kind of like, you know, it accelerated uh, very quickly in this whole sort of, like you said, you know, you weren't seeing all these images of the crazy madman Ozzy that, that image hadn't quite been formulated you know, to the extent that it would be by his third album, let's say. Yeah, by the third album, things got a little bit, they started to get a little bit silly, you know, with the uh, album cover and, and whatnot. But yeah, so so let's let's get into context of, of 1980. And I'm sure you probably know more about this than I do. Um, but you're, you're right. I, it was probably really difficult for Ozzy because number one he was already struggling with addiction which is like over the top drunk all the time I think he he was known to have done every drug except for heroin and he was probably on them at all the same time so he wasn't making his life any easier but he he was ambitious enough to to want to do this and then you know we talked about technical ecstasy and into never say die when he actually did leave and he had the idea that he was going to form a solo band and it was he originally started he was living in that cottage in Portsmouth I think it was he invited the guys from Necromandus up and they jammed around just to see what could happen outside of the Black Sabbath context and it didn't go real well um, at least not in a way where he wanted to make an investment in that and not Sabbath. So he went back to Sabbath, but the seed was planted. He was wearing it as we talked about that homemade Blizzard of Oz shirt. And interestingly enough, and you know this too, I'm sure that you know where the, the name Blizzard of Oz came from. No, actually I don't. His father. Okay. His father said, you should yeah. call your band the Blizzard of Oz. And that's that. Uh, that's what I read, and uh, I think it was in, uh, it was either, if it wasn't in Martin Popoff's book, it was in Bob Daisley's For yeah. Fact's Sake. Yeah, because for everybody out there, that the, the band was originally, it was intended to be a band at the beginning. It was meant right. to be called The, the Blizzard. Blizzard of Oz. Well, so let, here we go. Here's, here's the thing. 
Um, so Don Arden was managing Sabbath at the time, but wasn't really sold on Sabbath with Dio. He just didn't, he couldn't wrap his head around it. So he opted to stick with Ozzy and he sold the contract, the management contract to Sandy Perlman, who was managing probably a lot of bands with primarily Blue Oyster Cult. And then you have like the, B, the BOC, Black and Blue, the home video and the, and the tour, which supposedly went poorly, like BOC didn't like Black Sabbath <laughs> and so on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Sandy Perlman was now managing Black Sabbath. Don Arden was, he, he had at least enough faith in Ozzy, not personally, but in concept that with that voice, you could basically probably put something out that could, with the right band, the right people involved, could be as popular as Black Sabbath. Because I mean, after all, it was Ozzy's voice was one of the main it was the main feature of Black Sabbath. It was one of the most noticeable characteristics of the band. So that was an important thing. So he decided he was going to stay with, with Ozzy. So he, he put Ozzy on a salary. And Ozzy had a certain amount of time to get his shit to, to get his, you know, his stuff together. Sharon wasn't managing him, but she was basically assigned to look after Ozzy as an investment that her father made. So that's when she started to become involved and in making sure that he was getting up and he was not going to choke on his bonnet or something like that in a hotel room that he was actually going to rally and start to get things moving and start to get things in motion because he was on a salary. Um, so, you know, then he was in LA, um, wanted to try to put a band together, met Dana Strum, Dana Strum introduced him to Randy Rose. I mean, to make a long story short, so he found the guitar player. But, and here's where it kind of gaps a little bit for me. So he didn't actually end up putting a band together in LA. He did move back to England. And while he was in England, he was at a show that was um, a Jet Records band because he was associated with Jet Records. Don Arden owned Jet Records. Don Arden was going to sign Black Sabbath to Jet Records. But when he sold the management contract, they ended up staying with Warner Brothers and with Sandy Perlman, as I, as I mentioned. So anyway, so so now Jet Records was a thing. Ozzy was with Don Arden, so he was by default on, on Jet Records. And Jet Records sponsoring a concert or in a club with the band Girl, who were on Jet Records. So Bob Daisley, who had just left Rainbow, went to the show. His former band, Widowmaker, was on Jet Records. He wanted to go and he was out of work. He wanted to go and try to make some connections and, and see if he could find some work. So he ran into Ozzy and supposedly the two of them hit it off. And Ozzy said, I'm working with some guys trying to put some songs. I'm trying to get a band together. Why don't you come over to my house and jam with us? So they made arrangements and and I'm sure you know the story. Bob came over, they started jamming, 
things are going pretty good. Bob and Bob said to Ozzy, look, this could be pretty cool, but you really need some guys that are top notch. These yeah, guys, these guys are good. Aren't cutting it. Yeah. These guys aren't cutting it. <laughs> then Ozzy went out and he's like, all right, everybody, pack up your stuff and get out of here. <laughs> and then he called, uh, I don't know if it was David. Me and Bob Arthur. are getting on like a house on uh, fire. House on I think fire, the fire brigade just left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he called David or Don and told him. But now he had Bob Daisley and, and you know, what an asset that that turned out to be because as things would progress and we know how valuable dot uh, Bob Daisley was. And the, yeah. Bob Daisley sort of for those, for the listeners out there, you know, Bob, Bob, well, two things, as Darren mentioned, this part of Ozzy's history is sort of cloudy. And depending on who you hear telling the story, you get sort of different versions of the story of how Ozzy put his band together and sort of these, these early years. I would encourage uh, the listeners to, to, uh, to buy Bob Daisley, who's the bass player in the band, his book, For Facts Sake, where Bob kept journals and all this stuff. And Bob sort of gives you the day by day. And like Darren said, Bob meets him at a Jet Records uh, concert and uh they go back they sort of hit it off uh then uh bob mentions or uh, ozzy so bob will function now sort of in the same way that geezer did in black sabbath where geezer was basically the primary lyricist of the band although you know ozzy did contribute some lines here and there and some lyric ideas for particular songs and some full songs but bob sort of functions in the same way as geezer would where he uh, provides a lot of the lyrics pretty much all the lyrics i think at, for the most part give or take a few lines uh here and there bob would be instrumental in the songwriting uh, aspect of the band and would be a part of the uh, even producing you know the, the album blizzard of oz is listed as everybody as a producer uh, so after Bob, uh, you know, meets Ozzy, they go back to the house, they fire these guys. He, Ozzy mentions, well, I do have this guitar player in LA and he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to bring this, this kid back over. Now, this is another part in Ozzy's history that depending on who you hear tell the story of how Ozzy met Randy, it's, you know, it, it varies depending on who's telling the story. I would encourage the listeners to look for a YouTube video uh, with Dana Strum. Dana Strum would go on to be the bass player for uh, Vinnie Vincent's Invasion and uh, what's the other group that he was in? Firehouse? Slaughter, yeah. Uh, so Dana Strum's an LA guy that kind of knows everybody. He, uh, he gets introduced to Ozzy. You can hear Dana tell this, this entire story, but he's the guy that was there. Uh, he, he's probably the, the most accurate version of the story that I think that I've heard is from Dana telling it about how, you know, he, Dana knows Randy, Randy Rhodes, because Randy was in Quiet Riot. Now, this is the Quiet Riot that would eventually go on to release Metal Health, but at this point in time, the late 70s, Quiet Riot is, is a popular on the L.A. strip type band slugging it out, but they can't get any kind of substantial record deal. They've had 
two albums released in Japan only, but they just, they can't break out of the, the LA scene. But Dana knows, Dana knows Randy, uh, knows that he would be a perfect fit for Ozzy's band. Uh, in, in fact, some of the names that were bounced around early uh, were uh, one of the guys that uh, Ozzy wanted early on was Gary Moore. And Gary tells, tells the story that, you know, Gary had just gotten out of Thin Lizzy. Gary was trying to get his Gary Moore's G-Force, you know, his solo band started. And he just said, you know, I, Oz, this just isn't, yeah, this isn't going to be a good fit. You know, I'll help you out if you've got to audition a drummer or a bass player. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll help you out, but this isn't going to work. It's like when you started, the word on the street was that Ozzy, he was like a laughingstock. Nobody thought that this was ever going to come to fruition. They said he's just, he, you know, he's a mess. Yeah, and it took the chance, the fact that Randy was kind of, uh, you know, a, a lot of more established people didn't want to work with Ozzy. Yeah. So he had to sort of find more unknown players, which, you know, in the beginning, that was probably a, a big gamble. It would have made more sense to have Ozzy surrounded by, like to have Gary Moore in his band because Gary Moore was somebody with a, you know, a, a name at that point. Uh, but it, you know, having Randy in the band, Randy doesn't really know anything about Black Sabbath, does, you know, admits that he knows little to nothing about Black Sabbath. Uh, and that's, you know, sort of worked to, to Ozzy's favor, I guess, because like you said, you know, Ozzy was just sort of down and out. Bob Daisley even talks about like, you know, having thoughts of like, man, should I get involved with this guy? Because again, you know, his reputation preceded him, Ozzy's reputation. Uh, so yeah, it's just sort of, you know, everything sort of eventually lines up for him. The first piece in the puzzle being Bob, I think, and then uh, Randy. And then once the three of them are, are together, they start writing what would be the bulk of the album. Lee would actually come in kind of, a little bit later in the process, they were auditioning a lot of drummers, couldn't find the right player. They were eventually to the point where the record label was saying, look, if you don't find somebody, we're just, you're gonna have to hire a studio drummer. And Lee Kerslake is the last guy to come in. Lee Kerslake having come from uh, Uriah Heep and he just immediately you know, fits in and locks in uh, with the group and they're off pretty quickly then. By that point, they're pretty much ready to enter the studio. In fact, all the writing credit on the album is credited to Osborne, Daisley Rhodes, except for No Bone Movies, which is uh, the four of them. Because again, Lee came in kind of towards the end. They had already written the bulk of the material already. Yeah, you, you could probably say that the album was pretty much done. They, they, they did, they wanted to write a song with Lee, so they did No Bone Movies. And no Bone Movies bumped You Looking at Me. Looking at You. Right? Yep, You Looking at Me, Looking at You. Yeah. <laughs> Which landed up being the B-side to Cra Crazy. the Crazy Train yeah. single. But that was the first song that they wrote for Blizzard of Oz. And, you know, I mean, looking at it in retrospect, um, do I think it would have sounded good on the album it wouldn't have sounded bad i you know it's hard to it's hard to take anything out of context at this point because as many times as i've listened to this album and how ingrained it is in my mind i can't think of it in any other way but if 
and I'm not sure how the sequence would have been affected, but let's just say hypothetically we were to replace no bone movies with you looking at me, how would, how would that have sounded? And when I listen to you looking at me now, I can hear, you know, a lot of the fire that was going on it, it, musically. There was, I mean, it was the guitar playing the song itself had sort of like in a, a mainstream sound, not too dissimilar to some of the stuff that was going on in LA at that time. And I'm sure that Randy probably bought, brought in some of that influence, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it would have sounded in the, the context of the rest of the album, but they wanted to get Lee involved. So Lee did contribute some writing to no bone movies. And I think steal away was the last song they did if i'm not mistaken i think so yeah yeah and then um so they wanted it was important to bob that that lee got a, a writing credit and uh no bone movies was the way to give lee the writing credit and i i've i've seen discussions where people think that no bone movies is the weak link i never thought that i i always thought it was a fun song um and I guess I'm on the same mindset that I am with an album like Technical Ecstasy, where I like the variety of material. I like that it yeah. kind of takes you through peaks and valleys and different different sounds and moods and things. And there's some, you know, introspective things. There's some some horror fantasy type of things. And there's just fun songs. And, and I appreciate that. And I think that you looking at me probably would have taken up the same the same sort of space as No Bone Movies, but No Bone Movies was just a little bit more fun, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, you know? the riff is a little bit better. And yeah, it's it's interesting that that song, well, I'll get to that song in a second. Going back to Bob Daisley for a second and also discussing the importance of Randy coming in into the band. Uh, so Randy is in Quiet Riot, uh, the before Metal Health, Quiet Riot. And, uh, you know, it's the combination of, if any, Quiet Riot at that point with Randy had put out two albums that were only released in Japan. And if you listen to those two albums, they're, they're not particularly good. The first one is, is not really good at all. The second one is okay. Uh, so it's clear that when Randy gets together here with Bob Daisley, who has some songwriting chops and is able to sort of shape these you know what randy has going on and put them into the songs ozzy talks about how uh randy was the first musician he had worked with that that worked with him almost like a teacher and he describes writing having the melody for goodbye to romance and humming that to randy and randy sitting down and going okay well listen try it here this will fit your range a little bit better. And Randy put the chords behind it. And Ozzy had this melody. And I think if Bob tells the story that, that Ozzy was writing out the lyrics for it and he sort of hears them working on this in the kitchen or something. And he walks by and he hears it and he goes, great song, but those lyrics are terrible. So, you know, Bob takes it. And, you know, I think Ozzy might've had the, the line goodbye to romance and then Bob takes it and, you know, puts, puts the lyrics together with it. But it, it sort of shows the, the different dynamic here now where uh, 
Ozzy is able to have this relationship with Randy where Randy is able to work with Ozzy and, and Randy is sort of like this where maybe Ozzy sometimes feels, said he would sometimes feel a little intimidated around Tony Iommi. You know, he didn't have quite the same relationship where Randy, uh, maybe it's Randy's background as a music teacher. Randy, uh, for those who don't know, his, his mother owned a music school in uh, Burbank, California, where Randy was from, uh, that she was a high school music teacher. And Randy was a famous local guitar teacher with like some 40 to 50 odd students when he lived in LA. So Randy had that part in him of being a, being a teacher. And I think that him getting together with Ozzy and being able to help Ozzy like, all right, show me your idea. I'm gonna help you work this out. And then you throw Bob in there helping out with the lyrics helping shape the songs. So going back to you looking at me, looking at you, that's an interesting song because it's a Quiet Riot song. Uh, I forget what the name of the Quiet Riot song is. It's something like uh, Kiss of Kiss of Death, I think. I, I know, yeah. And uh, it's very similar to the yeah. Quiet Riot song. There's some things that are slightly different, but you hear, okay, you put Ozzy in there with Ozzy's sense of melody and you put Bob Daisley's touch in there and you've got a really cool song. The Quiet Ride song is like, it's okay. You know, there's nothing special about it. You add Bob Daisley and Ozzy more, you know, professional seasoned uh, songwriters and it sort of takes it to a new to a new level. So I think for Ozzy, you know, this connection that he had with Randy and the ability for him to be able to express himself more and Ozzy not being a musician, not being a guitar player, you know, this was probably one of the other difficult things about him putting a band together. It's not like Richie Blackmore leaving Deep Purple where Richie was a primary songwriter, big, big songwriter in Deep Purple. You know, Ozzy was, did the melodies in Black Sabbath, really. He, he didn't have a way to sort of, he wasn't a guitar player that he could show riffs or like Ronnie James Dio could play guitar and bass. So Ronnie was able to write his own songs on his own. Ozzy didn't really have the ability to do that. And having just left Black Sabbath and the only band that he ever knew, you know, Ozzy talks about this, how scary it was. He had never never been in, in any other band. He had never, never done this before. So sort of the gentle hand of, of Randy and, you know, and Bob, uh, you know, you, if you read anything from Bob or you see interviews with Bob, you get the sense that he's sort of this mellow, calm, you know, guy too. And it just, I, I think this all works together to help sort of prop Ozzy up and you can do this. And then there's just this immediate chemistry there. Lee comes in and it just sort of, okay, that's it. You know, there's just this real chemistry here amongst all of them. And, you know, from all impressions, it's just, you know, the songs are flowing. It's just every, everything is, everything is clicking and working. We mentioned earlier about this era of Ozzy being a little bit cloudy. Sharon makes it sound like she was managing him at this point. And she really kind of wasn't, you know, it was still Don Arden, but she was popping in and out of the studio. And even she recognizes, you know, that there's something special, you know, going on here uh, with, you know, with these group of players. She likes to, in retrospect, likes to take credit for some of the things that were happening in and around this time. But Ozzy, she wasn't his manager, Don Arden was, but Don Arden wasn't, he wasn't really keeping track of what Ozzy was doing. And, and Sharon was the one who was more or less assigned to check in and make sure that everything was moving along and they were going to get to 
you know, meet their deadlines and this album was progressing and things like that. Um, but Ozzy was still married to his first wife. And, but anyway, no, she, Sharon really doesn't have a whole lot to do with this. Um, but Don Arden was the one, I guess, who initially had the faith. And I'm not sure if it was really out of any kind of admiration for Ozzy or if he was just sort of looking at it from a marketing standpoint. But initially, um, it wasn't going to necessarily be a, an Ozzy Osbourne solo band yeah. that Don Arden wanted them to go by was Son of Sabbath. <laughs> Pretty, yeah, I mean, that's what he wanted, Son of Sabbath. And then he said, well, and then Ozzy said, no, it's horrible. And he reluctantly said, well, okay, what about just Ozzy? He said, no. Then he went back and he was talking to Randy and and Bob. And Bob was really only interested in, in being a part of a band. He wanted to be a part of a band. He didn't want to back up uh, a solo artist, you know? So, I mean... Especially because it was almost like an, it was an equal thing yeah, at this point. Everybody was contributing in the songwriting. Everybody was, you know, equally involved in it. Yeah, what, not really. <laughs> it was from predominantly Bob Daisley. I mean, Bob. <laughs> yeah, really yeah if you want to say, yeah, Bob and Randy really putting yeah. the bulk of it together. Well, the impression I get was that it really was mostly Bob Daisley. Randy brought some riffs and, and some, were, some were new and, and some were borrowed. And they were in some of the songs but it was bob i think that really took some of these riffs when randy would say what about this what about that like the, the beginning of yeah. i don't know was randy but then from that point on bob sort of took over and, and basically wrote the song and i think you know he wrote most of the music and well other than d and other than some of the things that you know like you said you looking at me was kiss of death by Quiet Riot, though in a slightly different format, but noticeably the same, more or less. And there was another song, I think, Laughing Gas. I, is that what it was called? I mean, that became crazy, or that was a... Well, there there was... Laughing Gas was a song that Randy, when they played that live, that's where his solo was. Okay. His, his solo with Quiet Riot. And inside his guitar solo are bits and pieces of various Aussie songs. So you've got... The intro to Goodbye to Romance, he plays that. He plays the bomb 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 part of Crazy Train. I uh, there may be like maybe one or two other little things that he alludes to that would pop up later in uh, you know in in the Aussie songs. So yeah, so I mean, the, Bob and Randy basically wrote wrote the album, but I've always maintained that. Um, it, it was Ozzy that, that, that sold it. I mean, someone else wrote it. I mean, Ozzy came in and he had some melodies, but there's a lot of melodies that Bob had in mind and told Ozzy how to sing them. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, for, for, you know, this, this whole idea of it being a band and not a solo thing. I mean, this, this is easy uh, to prove because there's flyers and promotional things that yeah. just promote it as, the Blizzard of Oz, you know, even when they first were going out and doing sort of, uh, you know, what would you call them, little practice shows and things like that, they were billed as the Blizzard of Oz. In fact, Bob and and, and Lee always joke about how they they 
you know, drove up to some venue they were supposed to be playing. And on the marquee out front, it said the Lizard of Oz. (laughs) (laughs) And from that point on, they referred to it as the Lizard of Oz. And they were they they, they were totally shot. It only changed when the album came out and it was originally the talk was it was going to be Blizzard of Oz. And then, well, they said they wanted to have Ozzy's name in there somehow. So they agreed to a Blizzard of Oz and underneath it featuring Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah they were and cool with that. Then the album came out and it sort of got reversed. It was Ozzy yeah. Osbourne in big letters and Blizzard of Oz, you know, underneath it to, to, to be the, the album title. And, you know, I mean, that was probably the right decision. I mean, Ozzy, you know, I mean, like I said in, in conversations before, it wasn't Bob Daisley that was selling. It wasn't his notoriety that was yeah. on the marquee. And it certainly wasn't Randy. Um, not that they didn't deserve it, but, you know, Bob Daisley was more or less in the background and in some of the previous bands. Um, that doesn't mean he didn't contribute a lot. He, he did. He contributed a lot in Widowmaker. I'm not really sure how much he contributed in Rainbow for the album that he was involved with. But um, obviously, he had a lot of talent, and he he did shape the album Blizzard of Oz. But um, it, it was Ozzy. I mean, it was Ozzy from Black Sabbath, and people were familiar with Black Sabbath, and people were – he has a very distinctive voice. And, you know, the people that were fans of Black Sabbath – in the era that he was a part of the band that wanted to hear more of that well this is this is where they would hear it and it was a coupling and it worked out you had ozzy's voice that was you know basically the the main attraction and then you had these these other two guys that were writing the songs randy and bob and they were writing the songs and they were putting laying out the foundation for ozzy to do his thing on top of and it it all worked out and in the grand scheme of things, if there was any justice in the world at that time, it, it would have worked. It would have went a lot differently. Um, there would have been a, a band. I guess that would have been fair, but I don't know that it would have sold as well. I don't know that people would have saw the name Blizzard of Oz without and made the connection. Yeah. And made the connection without there being some. I, it would have made the record company work a little bit harder to get the word out as to who was. The dry, who was the main person in this band? They would have really had to really push it, promote it a lot more. Um, and again, I mean, at this point, no one knew. It, was this going to take, was this going to be a successful album or was it going to be a flop? So, I mean, you didn't really want to mess around too much. You, you wanted to try to do the things that made the most amount of sense and you can get the most mileage out of. And one of the things was Ozzy Osbourne, Ozzy Osbourne's name. So the the idea was to, the final decision was to put Ozzy Osbourne and call the album Blizzard of Oz. Well, obviously, Bob wasn't happy about that, and, and neither was Lee. Randy wasn't too thrilled about it, but you know, I mean, he uh, he he was in it. You know, this was this was something that was was pretty big for him, and he yeah. didn't. He wasn't in the. He, he certainly wasn't. I mean, although he may have been, <laughs> he didn't feel he was in a situation where he would be able to protest too much. Yeah, I think for Randy, it was, this is his first proper, you know, budgeted uh, recording experience. And so he was just happy to be there. Bob and Lee are more seasoned, having spent time in various bands that were already signed and toured and stuff like that. So 
Yeah, this was taking Rainey's ideas and his music and his playing and, and putting it to a much, much larger audience. And then when um, Randy wanted to include that little classical guitar piece, D, named after his mother, wanted to do it. Um, he wasn't sure if it was even going to be accepted, but then Ozzy heard it and, and liked it and it made the album and he was real happy about that. So there was a lot of, a lot of Randy. It might arguably be more Randy involved in, in this album than there may have been with some of the Quiet Riot stuff. You know, as far as branching out and, and doing different things, would he have been yeah. able to incorporate a classical, a short classical no. in a Quiet Riot record? Probably no. not. No, uh, he really comes into his own here on, on this album, so. All right, well, shall we dive into the songs on the album? Sure. All right, it opens up with I Don't Know. Like you mentioned, it's got that that backwards uh, cymbal sound or whatever whatever that is at the beginning there. And uh, a great opener uh, I've always loved. We've t- talked a lot about Bob already. At this, at this time, I had just started playing bass and Bob was and still is one of my favorite bass players. You know, Bob's bass, the way it comes in on that do, 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 you know, is just great. Uh, the groove of the whole thing. I always loved the... Uh, Randy's guitar sounds great, of course. Uh, you know, I, I, I love the way, I mean, Ozzy had been doing this in Black Sabbath, but the way he double tracks his voice, it, it, it really gives it a unique sound on here. I always loved how Randy, he would play his riffs, but he would throw in little different little fills and stuff between the riffs. That was always like a standard for me from that point on. Like when I listened to guitar players, I'd like, I always like to hear them throw in little extra fills and things. His guitar solo is amazing. I love the breakdown where it's like, nobody ever told me, you know, and the like sort of picked guitar parts, uh, uh, there's a part in a song where Randy hits his wah-wah pedal towards the end. Everyone goes through and he's just going, wow, wow. You know, the guitar is making like this sound and the way the whole song ends, don't ask me, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's, a, it's an awesome, amazing, uh, you know, amazing album opener. One of, the, one of the things that was fun about this uh, song from a 11 or 12 year old mentality is when people would say, what song is this? And you could say, I don't know. <laughs> and the uh, lyrics are kind of fun too. It's like, great. you know, yeah. Don't ask me, you know, everyone goes looking to find the truth. You yeah, know, don't ask me. I don't know. You know, and it's sort of, it just sort of well, fits sort of Ozzy's sort of personality too. You know, people propped him up to be this, this larger than life in black Sabbath. They were supposed to be all yeah. this stuff. And then he's just like, Hey man, don't ask me. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Right, exactly. But also, I mean, there's there's some little pearls of wisdom in, in these lyrics, and it's not um, and it's a little bit of maturity in this song. It's a little lighthearted, you know, the basic concept that you know, hey man, I don't know, I'm trying to figure it out myself. Don't ask me, yeah. you know. But this is what you got to do, you know. You got to believe in foolish miracles. You got to like, right. you know, just sort of find things out for yourself. There is a message there life's a stage and we're all in the cast you know just yeah that's a yeah that's a concept that's been uh been used by quite a number of artists over the years but this is the first place i heard it even though i think that rush had already done it but i was (laughs) 
really familiar with that at this time. But yeah, I the guitar playing was was phenomenal. It had a bite. It had a lot of energy. Um, whereas Sabbath was, and you know, I I love Sabbath at the time. I still do, and I and I always will. But the riffs and the overall vibe of Sabbath was kind of lumbering. It was heavy. It was it was big, you know, big open riffs, you know, yeah. this had a fiery lighter, like a razor. It just cut that guitar tone. Just, it just cut and the solos were so fast and they were just, you know, the, the, the fretwork and everything. It was just, it was just amazing. And even though we had heard uh, Eddie Van Halen, this was taking it to, to me one step beyond that because it was, it was taking in, more of a different type of subject matter that I personally found more fascinating. It wasn't about beautiful girls and <laughs> partying and stuff like that, which is cool. But I, I liked the, you know, being a, a kid that was, you know, into horror movies and monster magazines and things like that. This appealed to my, yeah, my psyche more than, more than Van Halen did on this level. So starting off a of blizzard of Oz, man, uh, starting off with I don't know yeah that just uh, that, that pulled me right in yeah uh, right away all right and then next is you know maybe uh, well I'm, Ozzy's biggest hit you know Ozzy's most most recognizable song Crazy Train and uh, this for me sort of summarizes this sort of encapsulates uh, what Ozzy was able to do with his solo career and how he was able to have so much success you have the uh you have the main opening riff of the song, the the bomb 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 bomb, and then the guitar comes in with the da 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 that minor key thing, very metal, very minor key. But then when the verse comes in, it moves into a major key, and it's almost very uplifting. Very, the bass is playing almost like a disco bass line. You know, boom boom boom. You know, Lee's playing like a. Yeah, it's so drumby. Yeah, yeah, the drum beat is very disco-like. So you have this very uplifting verse part, but then when the chorus kicks back, in, you know, mental wounds not healing. You know, it goes into sort of the minor key thing. And for me, this is what makes Ozzy's solo career work. Is that and what appealed to me as when I first heard this album is is that it had this melodic element that maybe I was hearing before this in ACDC or KISS, which I was also exposed to at that time. But it had like that, that darker sound, like that main do 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 that main riff. And, uh, and it just, it, it, it totally works. The whole intro thing is, is, is iconic all aboard, you know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob's bass line is great. Uh, the guitar fills that Randy puts in this are just amazing. Uh, the way the song goes out and he's making like the train sounds at the end, uh, uh, you know, with his guitar, mm -hmm. uh, it is just, you know, it's maybe you could say it's one of those songs you've maybe heard it too many times, but I can still like when I was listening to it today, I mean, I just cranked it up and just really dug it. It's so catchy. Ozzy's melody line is great in it. Uh, you know, the lyric Bob's Bob's lyrics for it uh, are, are fantastic. Again, Bob, these yeah. sort of catchy little little like uh, one liner things, you know, millions of people living as foes and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. And Randy's solo, you know, 
we, we mentioned his, all, all the solos are amazing on this record. And what makes Randy special for me is this day. Uh, okay, if I say to everybody out there and us right here, think of the crazy, this guitar solo in Crazy Train. And you can hear it in your head. You can sing it in your head. You can hear the whole thing in your head. There's lots of technique in it. There's a lot going on, but it is super memorable. It's super melodic. You remember it. It just doesn't sound like somebody just throwing their fingers all over the fretboard. It sounds like it's thought out. It's so melodic and so fits fits the song. It's it's just great. You're talking about little noises and stuff as the song fades out. You know, you hear those like little you know train you know those little noises as the song goes out which is just which is great it's it's an amazing song that that, that for me sort of uh picks up on what would be for me this the, the formula for ozzy's success through his career this mixture of the slightly darker stuff with the more uplifting pop stuff the way he's able to combine these two elements throughout his solo careers is i think what would makes him uh makes him successful i liked all the songs on on this album but i think that this was primarily the one that i really connected with the most and for a lot of what you for the reasons that you just described i liked that it started off with a kind of a dark feel the i i i <laughs> then the vibra slap kicks in it comes back <laughs> with the left to right you know and it's like building this atmosphere like what's going on yeah. like creatures in a wooded area you know glowing eyes kind of a thing and then and then it kicks in with that that major riff and it just lifts things up and at the time i mean i i'd say that it was a bit of a more uh, more of a mainstream decision um with with the tonality and in the way that it was arranged in the song. Um, and it was a good, it was a good decision because I think that in the background of what was going on at music at the time, it inserted just enough of a dark theme vibe that you could associate with the image of Ozzy and Black Sabbath, but it brought it from there into a mainstream rocking. Everybody can, everybody can rock to this riff kind of a vibe. So it wasn't just, if the whole album was dark and occult, for lack of a better word, and elaborating on the vibe that was part of the Black Sabbath thing or the mystique, I don't think it would have been as successful. I think that they were wise to incorporate enough of that, but put it in a more of a contemporary setting with, with some contemporary ideas and make the songs melodic, make them catchy, try to get them on the radio, try to get people to, to get them inside their head and, 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 and get the word out there and, and get, and get the message spread, you know, get the music going. And, and I think crazy train definitely did that. I think that you could probably point it at just about any one of these songs and say that that was, the strength of it was that it got inside your head and it stayed with you. It was really memorable. What you said about Rainey's guitar solos, man, I, I totally agree with that. And that's what I really love. My favorite guitar players, they, they do that. They, 
they construct or they, they organize a solo that's melodic. It becomes a song in a song that serves the overall song. Um, and I'm talking about guitar players like Randy, Michael Schenker does it all the time, most of the time. Um, on a different type of musical level, David Gilmour would do yeah. that too. I can sing just about every guitar solo on Pink Floyd, The Wall. And then, you know, probably a lot of other, like, Wish You Were Here. There's so many guitar solos that David Gilmour does that are so melodic, you can actually sing them and they become a different song within that song. And I think that's great. I, I think that that is, it's really creative. It's showing that you have the skill to play a solo but you also have the ingenuity to make it appealing to people that don't play guitar, that don't understand really what you're doing. They just know that it sounds good. And it's a, possibly a part of the song that they look forward to. I, when I listen to The Wall, I look forward to some of the solos that David Yeah, Gilles. It adds to the song. It just isn't like a, okay, yeah. here's, we, here's, this, here's the spot for the guitar solo. Like it's this is just what you do here, you know. It it actually contributes something very meaningful to the to the song. Don't just don't just take a thirty second spot and, and make a lot of noise with the guitar. Um, make it count and make it part of the song. And uh, and Randy does that. And and there's so many, if not every solo that he does on Blizzard of Oz and and also on Diary of a Madman. That there's so many you can just sing. And if anything were to happen to change that formula if and we know there's been some bastardization of these or at least diary of a mad both albums actually mm -hmm. when they took the you know yeah bass and drum tracks off um but if anything were to happen where maybe hypothetically there was some uh conflict with the roads of shape <laughs> they had Ingve come in and play the guitar and he had George Lynch, I think. <laughs> George Lynch play the guitar solos. And oh my God, it just would have, even though they probably would have been really good, yeah, man, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same. And it was almost, in fact, it is at that point. When you listen to those, those 2000, what, what year did they come out? 90s? When they no, they were like early 2000s, I think. Yeah. I, I can't listen to them. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad about Robert Trujillo or, or Mike Borden. I mean, they're good players, but man, <laughs> I'm so used to hearing this album. Yeah, and, and, and the honestly, chemistry. And... Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, Bob Daisley's bass playing is just more suitable to, to Ozzy. I mean, I got, but I don't want to get too much into that. Um, the other thing that, that's cool about Crazy Train is whereas the album starts out with I Don't Know, it's a little bit more of a darker vibe to it not completely dark but you know it it has that that heavy riff then it goes into crazy train which starts off following in that succession and then goes into that that more up tempo more uplifting riff then back down again then up to it again and then back down it's just a nice a nice composition it's a, it's, a, it's a good placement for the song in the, in the sequence too so and that was one of the ones that i would gravitate to and the first two songs the, the one two punch of i don't know and crazy train perfect but sometimes that needle would just not go all the way back to the end of the record sometimes it would just go to the beginning of crazy train right yeah it's, it's you know iconic song that 
even if you're not a heavy metal fan, you're going to recognize those. You're going to recognize that song. And as a little note, you know, Bob talks about how this the title for that song came about. And he said that Ozzy used to always use the expression, he's off the rails. That guy's off the rails. And Randy was really into trains and he, he liked to collect little model trains. And so he sort of combined this you know, thing of like, somebody's off the rails, they're crazy, a crazy train, you know, and that's how they came to that. But yeah. all right, well, next, it goes into goodbye to romance. And this for me is what what you were talking about earlier about these, these changes here, the way the album is able to move from uh, yeah, the ending of Crazy Train is the, the sort of noises and the laughter and the demented craziness and everything. And then it goes into this you know, beautiful like ballad here, you know, Ozzy uh, putting, putting his past behind him, his past, you know, written like as if it's a relationship, but as Ozzy said, you know, it was really about Black Sabbath, you know, goodbye to, to that era of him. And uh, Bob's bass playing is fantastic in it. He sort of has this elastic Paul McCartney like way of just playing these little melodic lines and mm. uh, Randy's guitar solo in this one. I mean, they're all great. We've said that and we're going to say that after every, every song yeah. we talk about, but this one is just so melodic and the do, 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 it's, incredible that whole like synthesizer line at the end we should mention too we haven't even mentioned his name don airy don airy is brought in don airy at this time is in uh, contracted with uh he's hired as a, as a studio musician so that little keyboard synthesizer line boom boom dun, 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 is yeah. uh, you can't get it out of your head i mean you hear it one time and it's stuck in your head ozzy's Melody is great for some people, you know, I've heard some people that maybe a little bit older than me, five or six, seven years older than me that did, did discovered Ozzy with Sabbath around volume four or something like that. This, this felt to like a little bit too much for them to take, you know, this type of song, but, but me, it's a little too sappy for maybe some people that were used to Ozzy from the black Sabbath years for me. I always loved it. And it's, I'm a sucker for melodies. I like ballads. Uh, it works for me. It's a great song. I love where it sits, sits on the right. The sequencing on the whole album is perfect. And this song yeah. just works great. Um, I like Ozzy's. I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to say I don't like the song. I, I do. It wasn't really a highlight necessarily for me, but I really like, you know, people have said that the production is a little bit thin on this and I guess the budget wasn't really there to to do what he would do later on once you know the things started to take off and he became more successful um, but they as an aside they originally worked with and I'm gonna need some help on his last name Chris Sangres yeah, yeah I'm never sure how to pronounce his name either I've never heard it pronounced. Tangries, I think. So yeah, like it. you said. I've seen it in the back of albums. I've seen it credited for uh, Thin Lizzy, I think. Um, uh, a lot of the new wave of British, I think, Tigers of Pantang. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of other. Right. Ones. And so he was the producer on this in the beginning. And, and wasn't really, they just didn't like the way that it was, it was sounding. Uh, 
they were recording at Ridge Farm Studios, and Max Norman was the in-house guy there. He was basically the engineer, wasn't the producer. Basically, the album was produced by Bob Daisley, who was telling Max, or having some ideas about how he wanted things to sound, and Max could facilitate that and put that together and make it sound the way that, that, that Bob wanted wanted them to and so Chris was fired <clears throat> and Max Norman took over and basically the sound of production on this album was 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 Bob Daisley more or less telling Max Norman with with Max Norman's knowledge and know-how as an engineer how he wanted the album to sound and, I, and there's no it, it's not a, a it's not a huge epic sounding album it is a little quaint in some respects, but it really works. And on this out, on this song, "Goodbye to Romance," I like the way that I like the mix. I like the way that the keyboard part isn't necessarily something that's that's really cool. It's not a cool sound. It's not heavy. It's not dark. But the way that it's integrated in the song, it, it works. It works really well. But I really like the way and throughout the entire album, but especially in this song. And the thing I like the most about this song is the way that Ozzy's voice lays on top of the mix and the melody, the tone of his voice, I'm drawn into it. I just like the way that he sings it. And if it maybe were a little different, maybe his, maybe more of the emphasis was on uh, the guitar, less of the voice, I may not, it may not have been that appealing to me, but I, the main attraction for me in this song was was Ozzy's voice. And as you said, which I didn't realize at the time, a lot of the knowledge that I were putting out there, at least I know that I am, wasn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know who was, <laughs> I didn't know who was producing anything. Yeah. I was writing the lyrics. All I knew is that it was Ozzy Osbourne. And as far as I was concerned, he wrote all the music. Yeah. He played all the instruments. He, he wrote all the lyrics. <laughs> it was Ozzy and these other guys. That didn't matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's the irony, is because it's completely the opposite. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was all about Ozzy, and and I and I I like the way that, that the album was produced. Um, I like the way that it came together, and it would only get better up to a point. But um, yeah, I don't think anybody was really sure where things were going to go, and there wasn't a lot of money. But I think they did the best with what they had, and I think it was a very effective album. Yeah, and I've always been a sucker for Ozzy ballads. I think his his voice works very, very well in a in a ballad setting. So, all right, uh, next is a very short instrumental D. As uh, Darren mentioned earlier, this was something that Randy had worked up, but this was something else that was you mentioned laughing gas earlier. He pretty much had almost all of D written out, and he would play this in his live guitar solo with Quiet Riot. So this is something that uh, Randy writes. D is uh, Randy's mother, Dolores. He you know, dedicates Randy was very close to his mother. And uh, it's something Ozzy talks about how Randy kind of comes to him with, you know, can I put this, this short little thing on, on the album? And, uh, you know, the producer, you know, Max, you know, uh, you know, should we put this on here? And Ozzy, you know, let him do what he wants to do. And this is another thing that adds this. And for me, I just I was able to make this connection to Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath always had a lot of little 
acoustic instrumental things, Laguna Sunrise, Orchid, and, and stuff with fluff. And uh, so this sort of fit that vibe for me. It's just a short little thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's melodic and it just sort of sets up, uh, for me, it sets up the next song, uh, Suicide yeah. Solution. It's a great segue between Goodbye to Romance and Suicide Solution. Um, ends it on an ends it, it, as if Goodbye to Romance doesn't end sweet enough. This kind of like puts a little bit more sugar on top <laughs> before yeah. it comes in with a real, you know, sinister, heavy driving riff, Suicide Solution. Um, yeah, and the way that riff comes in on Suicide Solution, it's like it's like there's two guitars, but they don't start at exactly the same time. So it's like, it's like the way it slides into that first chord. It's just because that last note in D, it's sort of like the little harmonics on the guitar. And then the guitar comes in on Suicide Solution, and it's just like so, so cool. <laughs> and again, this is another album that I think had a perfect sequence. Um, so yeah, when, when Suicide Solution comes crashing in and like, all right, enough of that. Let's get back to, let's get back to some heavy rock. Let's get back to some heavy metal. And, uh, and still to this day, it's one of the best heavy metal songs of all time. You know, uh, lyrically, there was word going around that it was Ozzy wrote it about Bon Scott, but it was actually Bob Daisley writing it about Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> killing himself uh the solution being solution as in liquid liquid, liquid solution yeah as a solution as a uh a good idea or something a concept but um uh yeah so it was written by the lyrics of course were written by bob daisley about ozzy osbourne and uh they're good i mean it's kind of a cautionary tale um, and there were at this time, and of course, Bon Scott did, did die. John Bonham, I think, had just recently passed away. And uh, I know and Bon I, Scott, yeah, that was. Uh, I, I think I said Bon Scott, didn't I? Did I say Bon Scott? So yeah, John Bonham was was friends with Ozzy, and and uh, so yeah, they were seeing this this happening around them, and it was um, it was relevant, but. Mostly it was relevant to Ozzy. And because the entire time this was going on, Ozzy was still pretty much drunk a lot, still dabbling in things. And, and you know, there was quite a number of times when he wasn't even really participating in the songwriting or even there. He'd be somewhere at a pub waiting for things to be over or not even concerned with what was going on and leaving the writing to, to Bob and, and Randy. Uh, at, at, at the studio. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that it wasn't really something that, that really annoyed. I think, I think in concept, of, I think it annoyed Randy. I, I think that there was, there's word that Randy would call back and he would talk to, to Rudy, I think. And he would say, and Rudy would, how is everything going? And like, Oh, you know, Ozzy was drunk again. It's cold here. And it's like, really uncomfortable not having a very good time but you know we're getting things done and, and things are moving along and it's okay um but uh you know i i think that in a way that ozzy being involved anymore might have gotten in the way and it might have <laughs> it might have made things uh more complicated than they need to be so that 
Bob and, and Randy had, had more autonomy to be able to do what they want and they were knowledgeable. They were the people that were obviously more qualified to put this thing together and they did and they do it, they did it without a lot of distraction and then it worked to everybody's advantage. And Ozzy came in, he sang, sang the lyrics that he was given, he sang the melodies that maybe in most cases, I think that Bob had in mind when he wrote the lyrics and he, he did a spectacular job. And one of the things that Bob Daisley said was, and one of the reasons he likes working with Ozzy is because he can tell Ozzy what to do. And Ozzy can mold his voice around melodies that, that Bob wants yeah. the words to be sung the way that he wants the words to be sung. And Ozzy's, Ozzy's very, almost like he referred to him as being very clay-like you can tell Ozzy what to do. And he had enough control over his voice where he can, doesn't have a great range. You know, he's not a classical singer by any stretch of the imagination, but he could use his voice effectively and he had control over his voice. So if Bob had a melody in mind, he can describe it to Ozzy and Ozzy could do it. And so that was one of the things that I think maybe when everybody's on the, on the campaign to talk about how, useless Ozzy is and how he has no talent. I think they sometimes overlook the fact that he, you know, was in possession of a, of a very distinctive voice that he had quite a bit of control over and also uh, a good, a good ear for melody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I always liked the, uh, the, the main riff in the song is killer, but this, this, the part in the song, the breaking laws, knocking doors, but there's no one. That part is just great. The way that rhythm underneath it and the way the whole song, like sort of everything drops down to just the bass and drums. I know people, you really know where it's. And Ozzy's like those effects on his voice and everything. And the way the whole song kind of fades out, it, I was, it, it it fades out, but you can hear them sort of stop at the end of the at the end of the fade out. There's all these sort of feedback sounds from Randy and everything, and it's fading out, and it just sort of stops like right at the end of the fade out. And yeah. I remember being floored by I'd never heard anybody do that before. You know, you used to a fade out; it just goes yeah. all the way out, but this goes out, and and right when it's really quiet, the song you just sort of hear them hold out that yeah, it's pretty cool. That pretty last cool. chord is awesome. Yeah. All right. Then side two opens up with uh, Miss, Mr. Crowley. And this is for me, uh, this, you know, if I talk about some of my favorite songs of all time, this, this is probably one of them. Uh, this, the, the keyboard intro, the, you know, again, this was something that was sort of new to me at the time. It was so gothic and grand. It sounded like you were in a cathedral, a big church organ, so majestic and big sounding. Uh, the, the, the subject matter with all the symbolism, won't you ride my white horse and all this other stuff seems so mystical and the mystique around it and everything. Again, you talk about like being a fan of horror movies, you know, this just gives me a very British horror vibe yeah. uh, to this song. Uh, the guitar solo, the chord progression under the guitar solo is very classical. And we mentioned, we uh, briefly mentioned Gary Moore earlier in this and Gary Moore's short involvement with Ozzy when he was putting his band together. Well, that little melody line right there is very, very similar to a Gary Moore song called yeah. Parisian Walkways. Uh, and the chord progression is the, it's the exact same chord progression and the melody is very similar. And Gary talks about Randy, 
loving that song and it being sort of a, you know, like an understood, like I'm putting this in here as a tribute to you, uh, to you, Gary, but uh, just great. And the whole, the, the, the part of the song, I want to know what you meant. Yeah. Diddle, 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 diddle. And Randy, yeah. then the second solo is like really fast and uplifting, very, you know, very technical and fast. Uh, uh, this is this is one of those songs that when people that I run into who are musicians who don't know anything about heavy metal, so a lot of times I'll let them listen to this song because it's got the big church organ, it's got the interesting chord progression, the super melodic guitar playing, the great melody line, the fade out guitar solo on this. What's amazing about this, like when you hear Zach Wild play this or you hear guitar players play this, they play this note for note all the way to the very last note that you can hear on that fade out of that guitar. So a bomb, because it's so memorable. It is yeah. so you just you, you you have to do it that way. And you, you were talking earlier about like, what if George Lynch, you know, had come in and, and, and they replaced him with George Lynch. There's a version of Ingve Malmsteen playing a cover of Mr. Crowley that is just terrible it is yeah. absolutely absolutely terrible and it just shows you the difference between somebody randy was a guy with probably the probably the highest level of technique maybe only eddie van halen is only peer at that point technique wise yeah. but randy's sense of melody was just off off the charts so an amazing song it sort of embodies everything i love about heavy metal the grandness the epicness the moodiness the the gothicness just everything about it it's like a perfect heavy metal song for me yeah moving along through the album getting to this um this was the song that i think really um i was waiting for i, I wanted to hear something like this i wanted to hear something that had something that kind of tied in with the the, the mystical vibe of the album cover i didn't know who mr crowley was um but of course i did shortly after because i'm looking through every book trying to find you know encyclopedias and of course you know it wasn't hard to find out who he was but um another person that didn't really know who he was was bob daisley um and ozzy had a, not very much knowledge about him either just knew that he was a colorful character that there's a lot of folklore a lot a lot of legendary stories and the most evil man in the world or something like that. Of course, Jimmy Page knew a lot about him, but uh, th there was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, folklore about Mr. Crowley and, and Ozzy wanted a song about Aleister Crowley. So he gave the assignment to Bob who didn't really do a lot of research, did enough, I guess, to more or less skim the surface, but kind of took it in his own direction and, and put some really neat, mystical phrases together that I think does serve the concept pretty well. There's really nothing specific about Aleister Crowley, maybe a couple of things um, vague, but there really isn't anything specific about Aleister Crowley's, but I think the song is basically an ode to um, something that ties in with the, the more mystical esoteric vibe that Black Sabbath would, would put together. Geezer Butler would, would throw together sometimes shouldn't say throw together that would construct from time to time. And this is where there was more of a Black Sabbath connection, I think. Um, you referenced the keyboard sound when we did our Never Say Die podcast, that it was kind of similar. 
and I disagreed. <clears throat> I thought that this had more of an authentic, uh, creepy church organ, pipe organ type of sound, and and and, and I do think so. Um, Don Airy was asked to do an intro, and Ozzy was trying to give him some ideas, and I think Don Airy threw him out and said, "Come back in twenty minutes, and I'll have something for you if you just leave me alone." <laughs> And he, and he did <laughs> and he came back and he heard it and blew him away and that that was essentially the uh the intro that was completely composed by bob daisley that was from from his head and uh yeah it's a cool song it, it it like i said it it does bring in the um the other side to this uh album a lot a lot of different facets to this to this album, to the concepts that are that are here, you know, the, the lyrically, they're, they're, there's a lot of different things that are that are touched on. This sort of thing, the mysticism, I think, is essential because it does. I think it's something that fans of Black Sabbath that were waiting for something that from yeah. this that would tie in with that. I, I here it is, and what would follow. But this was the first place I think where you could really sink your teeth into something that harkens back to that period in the 70s when Ozzy was a member of Black Sabbath. Yeah. All right, the next, we've got No Bone Movies. And we sort of talked a little bit about this earlier, that this has a uh, fun rock and roll vibe to it. Maybe it's the uh, rock and roll doctor of, of this album. Uh, it's fun. I like the groove to it. The lyrics, I remember as a kid not having any idea what it meant. I thought No Bone Movies was some sort of reference to like horror movies or something like that. It isn't. It's uh, Bone Movies is a, uh, you know, British slang for pornography. Uh, Randy's slang. Randy was the one who called porno movies. There was a theater that they would go to and watch. I just read this. I think it was in Bob Daisley's for fact's sake, they talked about the origin, or maybe it was an interview that I saw online where they asked about the origin of bone movies, and they said that Randy would call porn movies, pornography, bone movies. <laughs> where, and that's where it... That's so it's a fun song that just, it's, you know, you can tell that it's like just a jam. Somebody had a riff, they jammed on it in the studio, probably the loosest sounding song on the album randy plays a slide guitar solo in it i always thought it was uh, it's a fun catchy melody i love like the part at the end where it's like no more movies yeah yeah you know and the way the song goes out and it sort of holds out that last chord okay you know and you hear like the <laughs> you hear the little laugh and everything and of course here's another you know, excellent uh, segue. And again, it's that contrast and No Bone Movies is sort of this fun, uplifting rock and roll, you know, good time party rock and roll song. And then it moves into, you know, the into song we'll be talking next. Yeah. And here again, we touch on the, the Black Sabbath vibe, but take it into um, more of a melancholy. It's kind of like almost ballad-like in some respects. The subject matter takes it out of ballad territory and, and into like a melancholy, uh, mournful sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, warning type of, you know, America. Yeah. Humanity is, and well, I mean, it was revelations in, in the Bible was, was the, the influence uh, that, that Bob used when he was putting this together. I'm not sure 
why he decided to go this route. Maybe it was to draw in some of that Black Sabbath, you know, doom and gloom into the album to balance things out. But certainly it's successful and the lyrics are great. Um, it's a good, good message. You know, it's not, it's not anything negative um, in a way that isn't more of a cautionary perspective on things like, you know, you've got to learn how to love, which is one of the concepts that comes through this album from time to time, you know, do good things and good things will happen. Don't do bad things because then that's bad. You know, that's basically the, you know, the, the running theme throughout this album, you know, give and take from song to song. And of course it manifests itself here in more of a biblical fashion, which is pretty cool. I remember being pretty, uh, pretty taken with this one too. I, I thought that it was, it was heavy, heavy in, in a different way. It wasn't as heavy as in like punches you in the face, like suicide solution does. This one kind of creeps up on you. And, yeah. Heavy in the mood of, of the whole song. And yeah. the, you know, you said the, the biblical type feel to it, just the opening line itself, you know, mother, please forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, this sort of a change on the, biblical line you know father forgive them they don't you know he sort of turns that around and has this very sort of uh we've crossed the line here and and, it, and this ties sort of in with sabbath because geezer was a very you know geezer was a very environmentally conscious you know there were a lot of lyrics like that too you know hole in the sky symptom of the universe stuff like that had that sort of earthy thing to it and this just ties into that too yeah, it may have uh, changed it to not make it so after forever-ish from father to mother. Mother, I guess, being a reference to Mother Nature. And I think the, the song primarily is a from an environmental perspective. An ode to Mother Earth yeah. in a way. Yeah, and this, you know, for me, this is another one that, that set me off into, you know, something that I would go on to love always, which is sort of this sort of classical orchestrated like feel the uh you know there's a tolling bell in it you know at the beginning of it which is just sets up sort of this the mood of the whole thing uh don aries keyboard uh part in this is mm -hmm. just absolutely beautiful very yeah. classical and orchestrated out and the way randy's guitar comes in after that with the ba -da -da, ba -da -ba -da. Yeah, very epic. Love it, love it. So epic. You know, I'm a big fan of, of things that have gear changes in them where all of a sudden you're like just sort of shocked by this. And that guitar line there is, is so classical sounding and so dramatic and, and everything sounding. The whole song just builds up to that and it just keeps getting faster and faster until it's like, bomb, ba da 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 You know, the whole song is it just, it's all building like right up until the, the end of that song. And it's just so well-written. It's maybe my favorite lyrics on the record, maybe some of my favorite Bob lyrics. Uh, just great. You've got the classical like guitar stuff uh, throughout and Ozzy's melody line is so uh, mournful. Looking back in history books, it seems it's nothing new. Oh, let my mother live. You know, it's so, ah, it's just very dramatic. He sounds like he's on the verge of tears. Exactly. It is such a fantastic, such a well-written song. It builds 
just so well to that climactic sort of conclusion there and that big there's a big gong cymbal hit and you know the way the guitar drops down and then it's like steal away the night you know yeah. it's sort of like almost like a coda to the album this is like a revelation mother earth is the end of the movie but then like steal of the way the night is this little extra little it's it's weird because it has such a different feel than revelation mother earth but you couldn't hear it going any other way than those two songs right into each other yeah we're getting back to uh before i get into steal the way the night the um getting back to Revelation Mother Earth, I think one thing that is pretty cool was that, and I'm not sure if it was a conscious decision on the part of Bob Daisley to, to kind of check some of these boxes off at things that Ozzy was good at singing and some of the better moments of Ozzy in his career in Black Sabbath. And for me, a personal highlight, and I love technical ecstasy, we know that, we've talked about it ad nauseum throughout even other podcasts about different albums, but especially when we talked about technical ecstasy. But one of the, the highlights of that album for me is uh, She's Gone. And the way that Ozzy emotes yeah. so well and takes those lyrics that, I, once again, weren't written by him, but takes complete ownership and sells it and sings it in such a way where they sound very sincere and very believable does that again here and it's a, it's a song that works really well with Ozzy's voice and you know Ozzy has a few things that he he does well and all of those things are touched on over the course of Blizzard of Oz uh, which we talked about but the last the missing piece the last ingredient I think was that mournful sorrowful on the verge of tears Ozzy that he does so well luckily there was a place for that in this song because it's a highlight for me you know remember the song i i remember not initially having a lot of impact it was a little slow um it was a slow build up but the way that ozzy sang it the the, the keyboard effect that mimics Ozzy's voice. It's like a vocorder or something. Yeah, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. But once I heard the song all the way through, listening back to it, revisiting it, I always look forward to that part where it would go bomb, And that was a concept that I was already becoming familiar with in my journey of going from, you know, it, going through and discovering a lot of bands that were releasing albums at the time primarily the album that i had purchased just prior to this was uh memory serves triumph allied forces and um there's two songs on that album that i was that was really into because of how it would go through a few minutes and then it would have that one part in the middle where it got really heavy or it introduced that cool riff fight the good fight did that it got to the middle and, and Rick Emmett kicks into that heavier riff, but the song Ordinary Man, when it's going through, you know, kind of a slow ballad song and then it kicks into a heavy riff. I was familiar with that concept. Hearing it here, I could wrap my head around it. I liked it. You know, it made sense to me at that time. You know, just kind of getting into, just cutting my teeth on, on heavy metal and hard rock just from a few years prior, but getting into stuff that was coming out. So um, 
So after the first pass, going back, revisiting the album, I would always look forward to that heavy part. And it, it's still epic. It's, it's still monumental. One of the songs that has that cinematic epic vibe, Mr. Crowley, of course, you can like close your eyes, the headphones or, or just look at the album cover and you can kind of play out a movie based on the lyrics and things. It'd be very gray and yeah. foggy and white horse and castles and English moors and yeah. all that stuff. English countryside. Yeah. 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 And uh, that's really cool. And this is the second to the last song, and, and this is uh, touching touching on that again. So, Steal Away brings things home, the happy ending, you know, the rock and riff, a little bit of a party concept kind of a thing. Let's run away, yeah. Let's, let's, let's uh, kick our heels up and, you know, let's, 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 let's take this thing out on a fun note. That's kind of what this song says to me. Yeah, yeah. Little riff, cool, kind of like a little bit of a Van Halen-ish sort of a vibe. Doesn't sound like Eddie, but it kind of has that, seems like it sort of has that mentality behind it, which, you know, at this point in the album, it's good to hear. Yeah, I always love the chorus in the song, the way the layered Aussie vocals, steal away, steal away, you know, it's really cool. And, uh, and again, it is, it is sort of, you know, the contrast to this, you know, right after Revelation Mother Earth and the way the whole song ends, it sort of ends on this unresolved chord, like burn, it just sort of, you know, hit, hits the ending, which is, it's just a really neat song. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, if, I gotta say, you know, what's an example of a solid ten out of ten album? Uh, this is this is an example of of that for me. This is a ten out of ten album. I, I can find really no fault uh, with this record. Very special for me. Very special place in my heart would set me off, you know, for uh, you know all the things that I many of the things that I still love today. They their roots can be traced back to, you know, to this to this album. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, any, any, we, we went pretty in depth on this one because like we said, it's, it's an album that deserves that kind of attention. You got any uh, final, final words or thoughts on the blizzard of Oz? Of course. So bringing it into concept of our podcast, which is about black Sabbath and that's our focus. Where are things in this timeline? Now? What's black Sabbath doing? We did touch on, uh, Heaven and Hell a little bit. We, we, we mentioned the release of Heaven and Hell that came out a few months prior. Um, I, I mentioned that there was some, the press was, was going out that, you know, Black Sabbath versus Ozzy Osbourne. This was in the background. Um, this, was, this was the thing. It was like a soap opera, you know. What's Sabbath doing? And what's Ozzy? Whoa, Ozzy, he, he put this album out. And Heaven and Hell was doing really well and it made Ozzy a little bit nervous. He's like, what if, you know, because Ozzy's sort of insecure personality to begin with. But when Blizzard of Oz came out, man, it just took off. And then it was it was game on. You know, there was there was then some of the rivalries started to happen. And um when Sharon, Yeah, I can imagine in the Sabbath camp, you know, they were probably thinking I'm sure they were taken back. I'm yeah, sure. exactly. I'm sure they were like, whoa, we weren't expecting him to come out with with something like this. Yeah. And you're right. And then it was like, all right, game on here. You know, and from yeah. this point yeah. on, it's it's 
And and so and one of the reasons we decided to, to talk about this is because we wanted to kind of, you know, get into the, the historical context of these albums as we talked about them. And it's, and it's, it's relevant that when we were doing our heaven and hell that, well, what about Ozzy? What was Ozzy doing? We know that Bill Ward was upset because Ozzy wasn't in the band. It interfered with his performance. It interfered with his commitment to Black Sabbath. The fact that, you know, they were all brothers at one point and, you know, what happened with Ozzy, that Ozzy was basically fired. Um, but then when we got to the end of Heaven and Hell, what about Ozzy? What's Ozzy doing now? Well, most people know who listen to the podcast what Ozzy was doing, but it, it's cool to, to spend a little bit of time and get into some of the background of, of what happened to Ozzy when he left Black Sabbath. You know, he ended up in L.A. He was sort of slumming around. He wasn't doing really well, but lo and behold, he pulled it together with the help of, of some really talented people and, uh, and, and made something and put something together. And, uh, and, and Sharon Osbourne gets, uh, you can't mention Ozzy. You can't look at anything on the internet that, that has any kind of a debate or a discussion about Ozzy and not see Sharon's name come up. But it's fairly safe to say that she really had very little involvement up until that. Yeah the release of the album uh then she started getting in, involved with ozzy on a personal level to which it became a little bit hard for don to handle and he just more or less signed ozzy over to sharon who then began managing ozzy and then things depending on how you look at it kind of took a turn for the worst and uh when we get into diary of a madman which i'm sure we will lots to yeah. talk about there and that's when things really start to get pretty interesting and that's where the Sharon with the dollar sign <laughs> in place of the S that's where things start to start to unfold but yeah. here it's a celebratory thing it's 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 cool Ozzy he he didn't die he didn't he didn't choke on his vomit in the hotel room <laughs> he wasn't right. so, so distressed by the losing his bandmates he he pulled himself together you know yeah and in some ways probably i think everybody was shocked by how good of an album ozzy put out probably including ozzy <laughs> i wish i was there I, I i wish i was i wish i was a little bit older and i and i wish i could have shared in in some of the excitement and the um and the surprise if, if i had just been you know a few years older and i had gotten into this stuff a little bit sooner then maybe I could have really appreciated the the irony, if that's the right word to use, um, about Ozzy actually becoming successful on his own. But yeah, time, I mean, I was just young enough, just old enough to appreciate it, take it all in, and uh, and have it make an impact in my life. So I'm, I'm at least you know fortunate for that. Yeah, and you know, uh, Heaven and Hell came out in April of 1980, and so the UK version of Blizzard came out in September. And although five six months doesn't seem like a lot, you know, it is it is kind of a lot in this in the span of a record. So Black Sabbath sort of gets their foot out the door. You know, yeah. they're, they're the first ones out the door here, and and then and then Ozzy comes out with this, and it's uh, you know, it's an album, yeah, album for the history books. It wasn't intended as a response to what they were doing because the album is already underway and things are already starting to take shape. But you couldn't help compare, but compare the two. I mean, it's just yeah. human nature to, to say, all right, well, you know, 
to look at Black Sabbath and look at Ozzy and and, and yeah. compare the two of them. So and it's like I said, I, you know, when it, when I was getting into this and reading the articles and, and and following the press and stuff, I mean, it it did kind of you know you you were either picked one side or the other, and I, I picked Ozzy, I uh, picked Ozzy's side, and um, hearing this album, it didn't diminish that. I I pretty much and I, I guess it took me a little while longer to get into Heaven and Hell. Uh, but I, I did, and we talked about that. It was a great album, and I, and I like it. It's hard not to, but this is where Blizzard of Oz was. That won my heart. That 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 won me over. That that was I was on. That was my team. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. All right. Well, we'd like to thank everybody for uh, listening here to this very special episode of Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. We appreciate everyone's support. Uh, Please check us out on Facebook and uh, we will see you at the uh, next installment, which I guess should be Mob Rules. Mob Rules. All right. So thanks again, everybody. And we will see you next time.